Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is Exodus chapter 5, and moving on this entire chapter, moving on to chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. And that can be, sorry, that can be found on page 61 in the church Bibles. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw and wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh, you speak in your name, to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, because of my mighty hand, 
He will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Shall we pray together? Gracious God, we thank you that you and we pray that in your mercy, you'll speak to us this morning. Speak to our hearts. Transform the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves. By transforming the way we see you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Beside them on the sand, a shattered visage lies whose wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet remain stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. On the pedestal, these words appear. I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I had to learn that poem at school. I'm so glad I did. Written in 1817 by Percy Bysshe Shelley, local lad from, well, Horsham. That may or may not feel local to you, depending on how far away you came from to Sussex in the first place. But in 1817, Britain was in the grip of Egyptomania. Monuments were being discovered, and many of them carted back uh, to the British Museum. And uh, there was talk of a particularly impressive uh, sculpture that had arrived. 
Uh, and a, a banker friend who was staying with Shelley said, let's have a competition to write the best poem we can about these colossal Egyptian statues. They took as their inspiration a line uh, from the Roman historian Diodorus that had a rather less poetic version of Ozymandias' claim lying on the plinth of this broken statue. Ozymandias, by the way, uh, was uh, a name given to the pharaoh Ramesses II. And for a long time, people thought that Ramesses had been the pharaoh of the Exodus. He almost certainly wasn't. But one of the reasons uh, people thought that was that Ramesses is the only name mentioned in the book of Exodus that sounds remotely like the name of a pharaoh. It was probably Thutmose III or someone like that. But you see, at no point in Exodus is Pharaoh's name mentioned. But God's name is mentioned. I mean, Shelley was no great believer in God, and yet his poem almost captures perfectly the words of Psalm 103. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. The Pharaoh of chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Exodus, on page 61, if you could have it open in front of you, that will help enormously uh, as we uh, look through it together. The Pharaoh of chapter 5, verse 1, is so like Ozymandias, the Pharaoh of the poem. A pharaoh of incomparable power, of incomparable works and achievements. Uh, And so, in chapter 5, verse 1, where Moses and Aaron come to him and say, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. They begin with a very modest request for a holiday, literally a holiday. A holiday comes from holy day, the idea that people would stop work for the day in order to worship, in order to celebrate God's goodness. They don't call it a holiday here, but that's what it is. Just a brief sojourn away from the tools so that they can worship the God who is their God. And what does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Moses, Aaron, do you not understand? I am the ultimate power. In whose name are you going to offer me commands? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Arrogant unmovable, apparently unshakable. But as the psalmist said, the wind will blow over him and he will be gone. And his place will remember him no more. We're not even sure exactly who this Pharaoh was, though we can guess. And that is hugely significant. Exodus 5, in particular, does not feel like a high point of the book of Exodus. In the previous two chapters, Moses has been talking face-to-face with God, effectively. It's been this glorious display of God's power. 
in miracles he's given Moses to perform in order to persuade the Israelites that God really has sent Moses to set them free, to persuade Pharaoh that God really has sent Moses. But then now, high idealism, the grand vision of God, seems to falter. This is what the Lord says, let my people go. Don't be ridiculous, says Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And as you look through the passage, you'll see that there are two entirely contrasting visions of reality, of authority, of identity, of value. Let's look together. You see, Pharaoh, just as it might sound from what he said as if he considers himself to be in God's place, who is the Lord that I should do what he says? Just notice a few things. Look across to uh, verse 11, verse 10, sorry. What do the slave drivers say to the people? This is what Pharaoh says. Do you note how it's the complete echo of 5 verse 1? The Egyptian response completely mirrors the command that God has given to Pharaoh. God says, through Moses and Aaron, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says in verse 10. This is what Pharaoh says. Two completely contradictory sources of authority. Who's really in charge? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? Two completely contradictory ideas of power. Look at verse 3. Uh, they say again to Pharaoh, Look, God has told us to go and sacrifice to him in the journey, in, in the wilderness, to offer sacrifices, and he might otherwise strike us with plagues or with the sword. Notice the end of verse 21. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Whose hand bears the sword? Who's really in control? Who really has power of life and death? Is it God? Is it Pharaoh? Notice two completely contrasting ideas of value. Throughout this chapter, Pharaoh repeatedly makes it clear that his understanding of human value is entirely about productivity. He is dealing with units of production. And so 12 times he talks about work or labor or quotas, or his representatives do. Verse 4, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Verse 5, you're stopping them from working. Verse 8, require them to make the same number of bricks. Don't reduce the quota. Verse 9, make them work harder so that they keep working. Verse 11, your work will not be reduced at all. Verse 12, complete the work required of you. Why haven't you met your quota? Verse 18, you must produce your full quota of bricks. The value of the Israelites is in their productivity is in their work, is in their labor. That is what they are, and that is what they are for. 
You are what you do. You must work. And he cannot comprehend that there might be a higher calling on their lives. No, he says it twice. Verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. They are lazy. That is why they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. And then again, verse 17, when the Israelite overseers go and complain to Pharaoh, he says, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. He cannot believe, he cannot imagine, he just cannot comprehend that there might be a higher value on their lives than doing work for him. And so he says, the only reason you're saying you want to go and worship is because you are lazy. Your desire for worship is entirely related to the work that you have to do. You don't want to work, so you say you want to worship. There is no room in Pharaoh's mind for transcendence, for the idea that there is a God who is to be worshipped, and that is a higher goal, a higher end for a human being, to worship the God who made you, than to just get your work done. Contrasting authorities, Pharaoh and God. Contrasting values, work and worship. Contrasting power, is it God or Pharaoh who holds the sword? And a contrasting view of truth. There at the end of verse nine. What does Pharaoh make of what God says? Pay no attention, he says, to lies. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And Pharaoh says, fake news. It's not true. It's lies. Which takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, in which God speaks reality into being. His word is so true that reality has to conform itself to it. God says, let there be light, and there is light. And so it goes on. But then in the garden, the serpent confronts Eve and says, did God really say? And then contradicts God's word when she says, we we can't eat that fruit. If we eat it, we'll die. And the serpent says, which is what God said, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, And when Eve says, if we eat it, we will die, the serpent says, you will not surely die. God's word is not true. And so here, the most powerful man in the world, the man who leads the world's only superpower of the time, and and in a sense, the only superpower the world had seen to that point, who sits there with a great headdress, the center of which is a serpent, says, God's word is not true true. Pay no attention to lies. You see how Pharaoh is set up in chapter 5 of the Exodus as the complete opposite of God. He is standing in God's place. He is claiming divine authority to himself and presenting a whole different view of reality, of value, of authority, of truth. And the question for Moses and for the Israelites is which view of reality in the end will they accept? The one that Pharaoh is trying to impose or the one that God is inviting them to? 
and see what a contrast those views of reality are. Pharaoh calls you to see only the creation, only the world. All that matters is what you do, what you achieve in the here and now. Make bricks, okay? You don't want to make bricks? I'll take away the straw. Now make the same number of bricks, but I'm going to withhold the straw from you. I will beat you, says Pharaoh. I will punish you. I will withdraw from you the little that you have so that you will understand your place. You are my slaves, and all that matters is what you do for me. And God says, come to me and worship. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you a land. That's what he says in chapter six, isn't it? He goes back through the promises he's made to Abraham and then to Abraham's children. I'll bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, from under this slavery. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you. That is, I will buy you back for myself with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. He calls them not to slavery, but to relationship. And the first command that involves them doing anything that he will give them when they do come to him at Mount Sinai, when he meets them and gives what we call the Ten Commandments, the first command that involves them doing anything is the command to stop doing anything. The fourth commandment. You are to keep holy the Sabbath day. And on it you are to rest from all your work. God says to his people, come to me and have rest. Because the highest goal of your life is not what you achieve, but who you worship. God calls his people out of a view of the world that is limited to time and space. He calls them to transcendence and to permanence and says, rest and worship. That's what Jesus says. You can turn to it if you want to on page 977 about why he has come, what he has come to do. Contrast this with the yoke of Pharaoh. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Pharaoh looks all-powerful. He looks like he can not be defeated. He looks like the only show in town. But even the unbelieving Percy Shelley, on looking back through history, can see the winds just sweeping him away. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair, is such a boast of power. However mighty ye might be, look at my works and you will despair, proclaims the statue. And yet now it proclaims a very different message. No matter how great you are, look at my works and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. There's nothing except the boast. Everything is gone. It was meaningless. And so listen to what God says to his people in Psalm 103, either side of the bit I read to you. 
a moment ago. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. If the wind blows over it, it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Two visions of reality. Which one are you living in? That, in the end, is the question that Exodus chapter 5 and the beginning of Exodus chapter 6 ask us. They're not a low point in the story at all. They actually turn the mirror around and they say to you, who do you think you are and why do you think you matter? Are you what you do? Are you just a unit of productivity? Is your value to be measured in your output? Or are you more than that? Are you a person made in the image of God who has the potential to permanent significance, who is invited to transcendence, to worship God, to know him, to love him, and be loved by him for eternity? Is work or worship the primary good in your life? That isn't an easy question to answer, is it? However long you might have been a Christian, however committed to church you might have been your whole life, that is not an easy question to answer, I venture. Because I think of the way I react when I hear the stories of my friends who have chosen to prioritize worship over work. I think of one friend, Daff. Daff was the captain of England schools at rugby. An exceptional player. To give you some idea of how exceptional, uh, he was the captain and Martin Johnson was one of the players in the team. He went on to captain England to the World Cup. Uh, And he was scheduled to travel with Martin Johnson to New Zealand to spend a year at playing club rugby in New Zealand. It was that year that brought Martin Johnson back to prominence in English professional rugby. But Daft chose not to go. Why? Well, whilst he was at Cambridge University, he was converted, he became a Christian. And he decided that the thing that mattered most in his life was to stay where he was at the church where he'd come to know Jesus Christ and get to know him better. And so he turned his back completely on the potential of World Cup glory so that he could worship. Now, when I first heard that story, when Daph was telling me, you know, I, I was going to go to New Zealand with Martin Johnson, but I decided to stay and study the Bible, I have to say that my first reaction was, you did what? <laughs> Or another friend whose career was really taking off and who was offered a position in senior management and then turned it down. Why? So she could still go to home group. So she could meet with a small group of Christians and read the Bible and pray. And you hear a story like that and you think, 
You had so much potential. Your life could have been so impressive. But to her, worship mattered more than work. She had a higher view of what it meant for her to be a human being. That she was made for God, not just for the creation. That's searching, isn't it? In the end, how will your life be measured? What does it all add up to? What does, why does it matter? Because even, this is the thing that Shelley's done for us so brilliantly, is he's shown us just, if you give it enough time, if you're measuring by keeping score in terms of achievement, in terms of productivity, in terms of the mark you make on the world, if you give it enough time, everyone's life is completely meaningless. If that's how you're keeping score, none of it matters. But if the thing that matters most, if the thing that actually defines us is the God who made us for himself, if our relationship to him, if our capacity for worship and transcendence is the thing that matters about us, is the thing that in the end is core to our identity, well then, there is eternal significance to your life. It will go on forever. It will endure with him. And they so often, I think, we imagine that turning from God brings freedom. Pharaoh offers a different picture, doesn't he? You will always be a servant of someone or something. And the question is whether that service will actually mean freedom or slavery. the way the New Testament of the Bible picks up the Exodus story, it's, uh, it shows us that Pharaoh is really a picture of any system of values, any system of significance other than service of the living God. We might think we set ourselves free, we can be who we are, we can be our authentic selves by turning from him, but actually we just make ourselves slaves whether that's slaves to our desires, slave to a human-imposed system, whatever it might be. But what God offers is not freedom in the sense of having no one to answer to, but freedom to be who you were made to be. Freedom to worship, which is the highest calling available to any creature, to know God to love him and to respond rightly to him. Two ways of looking at the world. A world with God at the center and a world in the end with self at the center. A world of work or a world of worship. I wonder which of those worlds are you living in? I know which world in the end works out better.